thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. still in chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, and I think that by now you're, you're trying to see the flavor of the study, where we're not really focused on trying to figure out or ferret the extraordinary events of today and tomorrow, but rather really trying to understand what is at the heart of this book, which is the way the Lord interacts with us throughout history. What I'm going to do tonight is continue what we've started last time, which is taking a wide stroke, seeing the different elements, and see how all those elements map back to the liturgy. And then, God willing, I'm going to go through Scripture and show you that what we see here is not unique. The language may be different, there may be some images, there may be different, but the, the fundamental take on the truth of God is not unique. It is also present elsewhere in Scripture. And then, if I have still time remaining, I want to start reflecting on what does it mean to us today. Again, th- bringing it into our, the context of today, and hopefully help you and me unlock that power which is always present, which is part of God's gift for us through the liturgy. So please turn again to chapter 5 in the book of Revelation, and I am uh, following this uh, translation here, which is the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Um, If you're following with another version, you may find differences in translation. This tends to be more literal, meaning more closer to uh, to the original. At the same time, it's drier, so it's not your bedtime bedtime reading. Uh, there are other translations who are nicer to read, but for a study, this this is uh, overall more satisfying. Remember from last time that John now is up in heaven. It is not the heaven as we will experience it, God willing, once we get there after we die. Because obviously he's not beholding the beatific vision. The beatific vision is to see God as he truly is in his divine nature. Now, why would that, why would the vision of God in his divine nature make us happy is an altogether different story. 
But for now, we'll take it at face value. But this is not what he's seeing. Obviously, the person on the throne who's God the Father is described in terms of colors and stones to make us understand that he is altogether different. Yet this is not his true nature. God the Father is certainly not made of different stones and crystals. He's a spirit. And certainly he's not sitting on a throne. He's a spirit. Therefore, it isn't heaven as we will experience it when we die. But what do we see? We see first and foremost somebody, the one who is, who was, is to come. That is another way of saying, I am that I am. The word that, that the Jews will not pronounce and Christian of Jewish background will not pronounce. But that's a different way of saying it. That is God sitting on a throne. And in front of the throne, there is this sea like crystal. And a little bit later, we saw the lamb that came to take that scroll that the one who's sitting on the throne is holding in his hand. And then in front of them, there are these 24 elders sitting on thrones, dressed in white and wearing crowns. And around them, these four creatures with six wings, an eye within and without. What that represents, <clears throat> what, is, what this image is conveying to us, and this would have conveyed it to anyone who was familiar with the Jerusalem temple, and anyone who understands the relationship between the temple and the cosmos, that the temple is a microcosm and the cosmos is a macro temple. The view of the ancient was religious. It wasn't scientific. Doesn't mean it was wrong. It was different. Maybe more profound in, in a way. So what you have here, therefore, is a representation of all the universe. God being enthroned, meaning that God is always in control, in command of this universe that he created. Around those four creatures represent angelic beings who are in charge of the well-being of the cosmos. The four creatures have faces of a man, a lion, a bull, and an eagle, the four central uh, constellations of the zodiac. And if you hear me talk about zodiac, don't be unsettled. The New Age movement has kind of hijacked these notions and... As you also know, uh, it is a, a sin for you to be reading your horoscope. So if you're doing, please stop right now. You're not supposed to ascribe any value whatsoever to stars as influencing your lives. That is a sinful thing to do. It's actually a sin of idolatry. So, yes, you can take a secondary truth about the zodiac, which sings the, the, the holiness of God, and, and subvert it. But fundamentally, all the stars in heaven are there singing the glory of God, meaning what? Meaning His, his intelligence, His perfection, His love, His omnipotence, His power. When we see all that, our hearts are raised and we say, how great are you, O God? The zodiac, therefore, is there symbolizing the universe. All of the cosmos is now around the altar. That is the key idea of this first tableau. Those 24 elders are priests, and the number 24 represents the total <clears throat> number of courses of priests that were at the temple. 
there were 24 of those who served the temple all year round. And I referred you back to 1 Chronicles chapter 26, where the first 24 courses are listed by family. Hence, they represent the totality of all the priesthood in the new covenant. Why? We know it's a new covenant because they are crowned. The priests of the old covenant could not be crowned. They were only priests. They could not be priests and king. That prerogative was taken away by Moses after the golden calf. Before the golden calf, any firstborn could sacrifice. Therefore, any firstborn of any family was king, priest, and prophet. After the golden calf, they could, not, they could no longer sacrifice. Only the Levitical priesthood could offer sacrifice. Therefore, the priestly ministry was reserved only to the Levites and no one else. Hence, those men sitting on these thrones are priests and king. And there are some ancient manuscripts that indicated that the apostles, when they celebrated the liturgy, wore crowns, specifically to represent that reality. And from that, we have what the bishop wore today. Then we saw the order of the liturgy as it proceeded. The first section that we studied with the letters correspond to the, the liturgy of the word. And then as we enter into the beginning of the liturgy of the Eucharist, we saw that the priests, the elders, took their crown, their, their crown off and then they prostrated themselves. And then we see that when a bishop is celebrating and he moves to the altar to celebrate the liturgy of the Eucharist, he actually also uncovers his head. Following that order, we saw that there was an angel who presented incense before the throne, which are the prayers of the saints. And if you pay attention to the order of the liturgy, you will see that before the words of consecration, we have the prayers of the faithful. And those prayers are actually presented by the angels before the throne of God. What you see here, it is not, is not an image or a fiction. This is reality, and it's a reality that happens every time you go to Mass. All right? This is something we have to keep in mind. This is reality, heavenly reality made visible to us in this book. It is revealed. Nonetheless, reality. Now, we saw that, all, we saw that last time. Let's keep on reading a little bit more in chapter 5 and 6 and then see what, uh, what, uh, what comes out. And then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look at certain passages in Scripture that I'd like uh, to draw your attention to. We saw also last time that... Uh, there was a, um, we saw that the, 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 the one seated on the throne was holding a scroll and no one was found worthy to open the scroll. I'm reading now from chapter 5 verse 4. And I wept much that no, no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is a confusing verse as long as you think that John's weeping has to do with the fact that he couldn't find anybody has to do with the fact that he did not think that anyone could actually open the scroll. That would be the wrong reading. That's not why he's weeping. He's not weeping because he's scared. You understand? He is not weeping because he's scared. He is weeping about the human condition. In that moment, he realized the tragedy of humanity. No one can open the scroll. The one who should have been there to open the scroll was Adam. For kingship was promised to Adam and he failed. And after Adam, every single man failed. No one 
was worthy to open the scroll. And he wept about our human condition. For if our hearts, our hearts were not hardened, if we were to sit down and really truly contemplate our human condition today, we too would weep. We too would weep. That's why he's weeping. It's not that he doesn't know that someone can actually come and open the scroll. Of course, God can open the scroll for one. And John is the beloved disciple. He knows all about Christ. So he hasn't lost his bearings because he's up there. He, it's not he doesn't know. He knows what he's weeping about is us. None of us can open the scroll. Now, why the scroll is important, we're going to see that later. The point right now is that it is important. And the other, imp- the other element that you need to meditate on is this. Did that scroll, was that scroll with God the Father all the time? Was it with Him all the time? Of course. It isn't that He just fabricated that scroll on the spot. But why does the scroll show up now? Why does it show up now? It shows after the prayers of the saints. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? The scroll shows up after the prayers of the saints were presented before the altar. What does that mean? What's the implication? Think about that for a second. What does that mean for us? God the Father took action after the petitions were presented. Do do you understand what that means? Do you understand the impact? Do you feel the force of those words? If not, you really have to think about that. This is the power of the liturgy. We come before God the Father. We've examined ourselves as the first four letters have told us. We have to be in a state of grace. We come here, we're fully focused and determined to give God the glory. Many people say, I don't want to go to Mass, it's boring. There's nothing for me to do. I don't get anything out of it. Obviously, they, they're, they're, they don't understand what the liturgy is all about. It is not about us coming here to get something. Many people think, I, I go to Mass so I can receive communion. Yeah, that is true. You, you come to Mass to receive communion, but that's secondary. It isn't primary. The primary reason why we come to Mass and why we are required to come to Mass, we are obligated to come to Mass under eternal punishment. You decide not to come to Mass on a Sunday and you're a Catholic and you're standing, you've just committed a mortal sin. That's simple. This is one of the commandments of the church. You have to come to Mass every Sunday and every holy day of obligation. There's no if, there's no but. But you're not required to receive communion. You're only required to receive communion once a year. So why then do you come to Mass if you're not to receive communion? You come to Mass to do what? To give God the glory. To give God the glory. Now you might be wondering, well, why should I give God the glory? I mean, this is like, you know, what was, God is needy. It's like God sitting there saying, come on, come adore me, come on, more, more. I'm not hearing you, louder, louder. You over there, you're too quiet, zap. 
Is, is that what it is? Is this God having a, you know, an ego trip? Why are we required on the pain of hell to come and give God the glory? Why? That's the, the crux of the book. That is at the heart of this book. Why are we required? Because, simply put, and my answer is going to disappoint you because it seems so trivial. He's the creator. We are a creature. We come to give God the glory because we recognize that it is His due. Honestly speaking, we owe Him His due. He's the creator. I'm the creature. I come and I glorify the creator. That would be the first honest step of any creature who recognizes its state of creatorhood, creaturehood. I'm not a God. I'm a creature. I come and then give God the glory. But beyond that, I come and I glorify God because He made me and made us sons and daughters. We are creatures and He turned us into sons and daughters. He opened heaven for us. He wants to share His divine nature with us. It'd be like you are in debt for $4 billion dollars. Personally, I'm not talking about the state. Personally, you're in debt for $4 billion. You owe this creditor $4 billion. And you make about $100 a week. That's a rosier description of what sin does. There's no way you're going to ever be able to pay him. Not you, not your children, not your children's children, down to the last generation. Because the interest on the debt alone is increasing so fast, you'll never be able to repay him. Never. And this creditor comes and says this. Look, I'm going to clear your debt. You owe me nothing. You owe me nothing. Not only that, I'm going to put you, put your name in my will. When I die, so to speak, you inherit my fortune. Not only that, I'm going to Make you my son, my daughter. And just so that you can understand I really love you, I'm going to allow my only son to be killed for you. That's the reality of what God did for us. And then we grumble because we don't want to come on Sunday once an hour just to Say thank you. you. You see why it's so, it's such a big deal not coming on Mass on Sunday? It isn't just about being bored. It's showing a fundamental, a fundamental disregard for all that God has done for us. It's a huge crime. And yeah, it is deserving of hell. No doubt about that. 
back to this. We prayed. Our prayers were carried to heaven and were presented before the throne by angels under the form of incense. And then the scroll appears. And you will see this pattern across the entire book. We do something, there's a response. We do something, there's a response. Do you understand? That, there, there is nothing more powerful than that. Nothing. If we have faith, and if we understand what is going on. Now, <clears throat> the Lamb appears, and the, the reason why the Lamb appears is He appears as, as, and He's slain. And we said last time, the paradox, because what the elder says to John when he cried, he said, Weep not, lo, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And we expect to see a lion, and instead we see a lamb. And there's irony there. You're waiting for a lion, and the lamb show up, shows up. And the lamb roars. You know, It's ironic. But it is also very much a reality of, of the Eucharist. Because with the Eucharist, we expect, when we look, we expect to see God. And all we see is a wafer. Same thing. Same paradox. And then he takes the... Um, he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated... And uh, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the praise of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the scroll amid and to open its seals, for thou hast slain by thy blood this ransom meant for God, for every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hast made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Kingdom and priests. King priests. All right? Key on those words. Because before, you could not be a king and a priest. You could be a king or a priest, but not both. Now, you're king and priest. So therefore, the kingdom that they have in mind is what kind of kingdom? It's a priestly kingdom, isn't it? It's a priestly kingdom. All right. So anyone waiting for a sort of a Roman Empire style kingdom is going to be waiting for a long time. Not going to happen. The kingdom that is being established is a priestly kingdom for the purpose of what? Celebrating the liturgy. Right? And then we pointed out that they shall reign on earth. It doesn't say they shall reign in heaven. They shall reign on earth. And we pointed that out last time. Every, and we're going to see in some parts of scripture why that is the case. But effectively, every Catholic is supposed to be reigning. You reign on earth. This is not just about the bishops and the priests. This is about every Catholic. The kingdom of priests and, and, and the kingdom of priests and kings doesn't mean only the ecclesiastical order. It means the reality of what it is to be a Catholic. Your king and your priest. And that extends across the gender. We're using male terminology here, but, but whether you're a woman or a man, that ability to reign, to offer sacrifice, to pray, to offer intercessions, to stand before the throne of God is open to all of us. 
because of the victory of Christ. What they're saying, the reason is why Christ won, was to establish a kingdom on earth of priests and kings. This is the reality of what we're talking about. The purpose of the church, the purpose of the Catholic church, is to rule the world. Shocking, isn't it? We're not used to this language anymore. The purpose of the Catholic Church is to rule the world. Nothing else. Nothing less than that. Now, the way the church rules is not the way that most people think ruling would happen. She rules through service. She rules through sacrifice. She rules by showing the light. She rules by teaching. She rules by the saints. She rules by, the, by proclaiming the truth. She rules by defending all the moral values. That's the rule of the church. That's her prerogative. That's her authority. And she doesn't need it from anybody. If you are convinced of the truth of Catholicism, if you understand what it means to be Catholic, and if you are completely comfortable in your Catholicism, guess what? You're being fit for heaven. Because that's how everybody up there think. Can't be Catholic and be shy about it. Can't be Catholic and hide it only for yourself. Can't be Catholic, go to a restaurant and don't do your sign of the cross before you eat. Don't kid yourself. You're not ruling. You're not reigning. We make choices every step of the way. The little choices... Those are the most important ones. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Notice anything? It should start to come to you right now, you know, almost like a reflex. Anybody? Yes, it is the end of the Our Father, but it's the number that I'm interested in. Seven. Alright? It's not coincidence. Count them. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. No coincidence, is it? Alright? So, you, 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 we've talked a lot about the covenant and its importance. I'm not going to... I'm not going to talk about it now, but just keep these things in mind. And yeah, that's where we get the end of the Our Father right from here. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all therein saying, To him who sits upon the throne and to Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Okay, how many? How many uh, uh, adjectives right now? Blessing, honor, glory, and might. What is for? Totality, the whole earth, okay? You start to key on those things. Now notice, this is almost antiphonal. You, you can imagine two parts of a choir, the first singing the first half, and then the second responding. You understand? This can be sung as part of a liturgy. Right? In the temple, they not only had 24 courses of priests, they also had 24 courses of singers. And the choir, in, in the high liturgy, in the high mass of the temple, would swell up 150 men singing, not counting the instruments. They splurged on singing. You don't under, we don't realize these days how singing is important 
Every time something happens, they sing. Men sing, angels speak. More often than not, you will notice angels say, the men sing. And most of us, there's a book actually, somebody wrote a book called Why Catholic Can't Sing. But the fundamental reason why Catholic can't sing is that they don't understand the covenant. And they don't know how to praise God. And they don't understand that they're coming here to praise God. You got to learn to sing. Sing hymns. You must memorize them. When you go to the liturgy, you can't be standing like this. I see a whole bunch of people in the liturgy standing like stones of sla- slabs of stone. Amen. And also with you. <laughs> Could you imagine anybody in heaven standing like this? How do the people think they can make it into heaven standing like this throughout the whole liturgy? Like they're stoned or something. That's just amazing. You're here, you have to celebrate. It's a celebration. Yeah, you have to put your heart into it. Not easy. You have to do it. But the more you do it, the more you are actually taking part in the liturgy. Which is a responsibility. We owe God that. When we take part in the liturgy, we haven't done anything extraordinary. We just did our due. That's all. And then we mumble and grumble why God is going to park us in purgatory forever. I, can't, I never cease to be amazed at how many people make it to heaven in a snap. All right. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Uh, you notice the bodily movement. They're, sit- they're seated. They fall down. They stand. Why do we have a body to worship? Why do we have a body for the liturgy? That's why we have a body. That's the purpose of our body. This is something angels can't do. We can kneel, we can lay down, we can raise our arms. The purpose of our body is to worship God first, before all else. All right. And now in chapter 6, we start the opening of the scroll. Now the opening of the scroll, I'll say this before I go now to the, the, the parts of Scripture I want to cover with you. The opening of the scroll is particular to the time of John. By this I mean that Jesus Christ is not, every time you celebrate the liturgy, opening a scroll. That opening scroll happened once. But what does it represent? What does it suggest? It suggests that all the problems of our time, all the issues that we have, all of them without exception, are presented before the throne of God during the liturgy. And that God takes action. And that God listens and receives and acts. For He is the sovereign God. He is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. History is under His command. Everything that happens, from you scratching your head to a hurricane, happens because Christ wills it. Nothing happens outside of His will. Nothing. All right. So please, rid yourself from this heretic notion that somehow God created the universe in the beginning, put it on autopilot, and then went away. And from time to time, he comes and checks on it, like somebody coming to check on us too. And then he leaves it up to us to figure things out. Please, get rid of this. It has nothing to do with the truth of our faith. So, we will be covering those scrolls, the scroll and its meanings, and the seven seals, and what does it mean, and all that. 
Don't worry too much about that. But what I want to do now is show you that what I just said is not something about the liturgy, about the importance of the throne. It's not something that is only specific, peculiar to this book, but it's in, in, in many other places in Scripture. Before I do so, I want to point out something to you about the architecture of the church. The architecture of the church. How do you suppose the church should be oriented? Based on what we just read today. What should we have at the back of the church? A throne. Representing God's, God, the throne of God the Father. And what should we have there as well? The tabernacle. The lamb. Right? And in front of them, what should we have? We should have something that looks like a sea of glass, shouldn't we? In most old cathedrals, they used crystal, they used um, marble, white and blue, to represent the sea of glass. And then, of course, we have an altar. And then the priest should be facing where? Which way? This way. Right? Just like those 24 elders. Did those 24 elders turn around and then face the angels that just showed up? Were they looking to the angels? No. They were facing this way. Do you understand? The architecture of the church is not something that we own. We don't have a patent on how the church should be architected. It it ought to be architected according to the heavenly pattern that was shown to Moses first. This pattern here was shown to Moses first, from which the, the tent of the tabernacle was made, and then after that the temple and every church. Because it is a heaven on earth. It is a place where we come and everything is focused on God. Not on us. We're not here to look at each, every, you know, each other's belly button and see how great we are. Alright? That's where we're going wrong. You can see, in a sense, a misunderstanding of the theology of, of, um, of the liturgy by the architecture. You step in the church and you know right away, whoever built this church didn't have their bearings right. The structure isn't right. Now, this church we bought. We, we didn't build it from the ground ourselves, so there's work to be done. But most churches these days are built to glorify us. It's all about us, the horizontal dimension. Let's hold hands. I won't be surprised if one of these days they'll just start singing Kumbaya right in a minute during the, 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 the consecration. Right? It, we have work to do. I'm not saying those things to complain. I'm not saying those things to, to uh, cr- critique. That's not my point. My point is that we have work to do. We, as Catholics, have to re- rediscover what is our own and simply share it with others. We have to. We have to roll up our sleeves and do the work that God expects from us. The first paragraph I'd like to quote to you, if I can find it. This is a quotation I'm taking from um, this, um, this version, which is called the Navarre Bible. If you're not familiar with it, please familiarize yourself with it. This is the book of Revelation in the Navarre Bible series, which is scripture and commentary. And in it, they, they have this to say about chapter 4. 
the through these visions laden with symbolism, the apocalypse shows the solidarity that exists between the church triumphant and the church militant, specifically the connection between the praise that is rendered God in heaven and that which we offer him on earth in the liturgy. The Second Vatican Council refers to this, quote, In the earthly liturgy we take part in the foretaste of that heavenly liturgy which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. With all the warriors of, of the heavenly army, we sing a hymn of glory to the Lord, venerating the memory of the saints. We hope for some part and fellowship with them. We eagerly await the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, until He, our life, shall appear, and we too will appear with Him in glory. And that is taken from Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraph 8, one of the most authoritative documents we have from the Second Vatican Council. So what this document is saying to you, to you is that the liturgy between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist is really representing for us heaven, representing, making present for us heaven. And we take part sacramentally in that heavenly liturgy where those who are in heaven today are celebrating it really. Okay? But let's, look, let's turn and look at the mind of the Lord when he was walking on earth and see that this is something that he had in mind all along. The first thing I'd like to do is go to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, we read the following. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to come. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, first, these are 70. These are not the 12 apostles. Th those are 70 additional. Therefore, he's calling on all of us. And he sent them two by two. And he said, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest. Isn't that odd? I mean, he knows that the harvest is plentiful. He knows there are few laborers. And he's got all the money and energy in the world. Why is he asking us to pray? He cannot do it himself. Why is he saying pray? Because through the liturgy, he rules. Did you get it? The means through which he interacts and talks to us and then feeds us and gives us what we need is through the liturgy. Think of it this way. The liturgy is like a heavenly cell phone. That's how you talk to God. Most often, this is the most efficient, effective way in talking to him. That's what he wants. He himself says it. Pray. Why should we pray? You're just here. You can just make it happen. You just have to say Shazam and you've got a bunch of laborers. Why should we pray? He furthers his kingdom through our prayers. The reason why he says pray is not because he cannot do it, but because he's trying to teach us the order of priority. I've told you that before last time. We tend to put Christ first. Christ puts the church first. In the eyes of Christ, in a sense, the church is more precious to him than himself. Just as a husband who loves his wife would consider her to be more precious to him than himself. In a sense, of course. Now, let's not take that literally, okay? Because there's a difference between the church and Christ. Christ is God. But nonetheless, 
in his eyes and in his in ways of extending his kingdom on earth it is through his beloved the church so he wants everything to come to him to come to him through his beloved the church that's why he tells us pray he won't give it to us unless we pray not pray on my own not okay you know, I don't want to go to mass i'm not interested Lord, I don't care. I'm just, but it's going to be you and me. Let me go sit in my room. Don't get me wrong. It's very good to sit in a room and to pray. You have to do that too. But not apart from, not separate from the main prayer, which is the prayer of the church. And then he says, Go your way. Behold, I send, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and salute no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first stay. First say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace shall rest upon him. But if not, it shall return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is said before you. Heal the sick in it, in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God. The same kind of word that we saw about a kingdom of priests and king, and that they will reign on earth. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Let me ask you this question. Is Christ anywhere near? He sent him to all those villages. Is he anywhere near? Physically? No. That doesn't mean that the kingdom of God has come near, the kingdom of God has come near to you because Christ is near. It means that the kingdom of God has come near to you because the church is in your midst. That's what it means. Why does he send them? What does he send seventy? Why did he appoint apostles? It wasn't about him. It's about his church. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, "Even the dust of your town that clings on our to our feet, we wipe off against you." Nevertheless, know this: that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. All right, let's be very clear here. Whom they did not receive. Whom this town did not receive. The, the, the what? The word of God? No. No, you see, that's abstract, right? I mean, physically, there wasn't a word floating around that showed in town, right? Who showed in town? Two people, two guys, or two, yeah, two guys at a time, right? Two guys showed up. Make it be very, very, very concrete. Otherwise, you lose the meaning. Those guys showed up. And whom they did not receive? Those guys, right? Who are those guys? The church. So whom they did not receive? The church. It isn't about not receiving Christ. It isn't about not receiving Christ. If that was the case, he would go himself. And then they would not receive him. But that's not the case. He sent those 70, part of his church, and those are not received. And what can they do? They can shake the dust of their sandals against them. What does that mean? That sounds funny to us today. First of all, most of us don't wear sandals. We wear flip-flops. But it would have sounded funny if they translated it as flip-flop, right? Probably they weren't flip-flops. But... (laughs) Whatever the case may be, why? What does it mean to shake the dust? It's a 
curse. Alright? It's a curse. In other words, even the dust of your city we reject. Not just you, everything about you is rejected. So let me explain that to you, because you're part of those 70. You and me. Yeah. I got news for you. Every one of you, baptized, confirmed, go to Mass every Sunday. You're part of those 70. If you were to go to a town, and if you were to knock on doors, and proclaim the good news of Christ, namely, that the Catholic Church is His bride, that's the good news. Okay? And this town would not receive you. 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 Then what would happen to this town? I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than it is for this town. We are not fighting to keep the cross in San Diego because we are cowering and we want our rights. That's such a wrong way of fighting. Yeah, clearly we have to maintain our rights and all that good stuff. I'm with you on that. But that would be missing the point. The reason why we fight to maintain this cross in San Diego is because if they reject the cross, guess what they've rejected? The church. Not God, the church. We're not fighting to keep the cross because we're afraid of Satan or the devil. There's, believe me, there is one who is much more fearsome than the devil. He's the only one who can send us to hell. Satan can't do that. He can. Do you understand? That is the awesome power of Catholics. That's what you can do. You can bless and you can curse. And that is why St. Paul when the said, bless and do not curse. He didn't mean bless and do not swear. He wasn't talking about using bad language. He's saying, you have power in your hands. Use it very carefully. Now, I am hearing my voice echoing off the wall, and I'm convinced you're thinking, this guy is way out there. I mean, way out there. Because to most of us, the church is what? Well, you know, it's kind of an old thing. It has all these guys in it that are running the place. And, and you know, it has all these teachings. And we don't really understand why it has all these teachings. And we're not completely sure we have to follow them either. And, well, yeah, sure, you can go to heaven if you go through the church. But there are many other ways you can go to heaven anyhow. We're here because we were born here. That's on average where most Catholics stand these days. That's not the reality of Scripture. To confirm what I just said to you, listen to what Christ says right after. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done to Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. And none of those cities ever rose again. This is not... A empty statement. This is historical truth. 
Why? Because they rejected his church. In one of the messages to, sister, um, to Saint Faustina, Christ told her that he will punish the world. He said, I will punish the world by allowing my church to be persecuted. And you think about it for a second. You know, what kind of punishment is that? It's like, God, you're punishing the wrong guys. I mean, aren't you supposed to you know, do something about the, the bad guys? Why would you allow your church to be persecuted? That's why. That's the worst form of punishment you can give to anyone. To allow the church to be persecuted. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 8. So beginning with chapter, uh, with uh, verse uh, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of sonship. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So the way the kingdom is furthered is through the sons and daughters who are willing to suffer with Christ. The reason why we reject the church is because we want to reject the cross. Anything but the cross. Anything but suffering. We don't want that. We want to be comfortable. To reign is to suffer. That is the way of the church. Because it is the way of the cross. There's no other way. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. See the same kind of wording about revelation. The sufferings of this time are nothing compared to what is to be revealed to us. And all of creation is waiting with longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So it isn't just about us. It's about the entire cosmos. The whole universe was affected by original sin. The whole universe will be redeemed. And how will the whole universe be redeemed? Through the church. Through the church. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travail together until now. And not only for the, the, the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. All right. That's the other important uh, Catholic truth. It isn't just about you know our spirit. It's about our bodies. It is about the redemption of our bodies. So that they may be glorified and turned into what God intends for them. And if therefore he speaks of body, we can't say that the people of God is just you know all those who are kind of together in the faith. Without any structure, without any hierarchy. Because then he would say the redemption of our spirit. And St. Paul would spoke of the, you are the spirit of God. He would not say you are the body. You are the body of Christ. He would have said you are the spirit of Christ if he intended to be loosely organized. All those faithful all over the world, without any organization or structure, are all part of the spirit of Christ. That would have made sense. But a body has a structure. There's a head, there are arms, feet. There's things keeping them together. 
Therefore, it has a physical presence. It has a physical manifestation. You can't separate the church from the hierarchy. No pope, no church. No pope, no church. Because of the physical reality and the physical salvation of our bodies. We know that in everything, God works for good, verse 28, with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him. Everything is directed by God for our good. All the events of the world, from the smallest to the greatest, are here for one purpose only. Only one purpose. His church. Yeah, in one sense, God wants to save the world, absolutely. But in a more deeper sense, it's all about His church. I don't want to get into it. I stopped there in particular, on purpose. Don't get me going there. Turn to Ephesians 3. Ephesians is really the, the epistle of St. Paul about the church. It is the, 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 the letter that has to deal mostly with the church. I want to listen carefully because here there's something very important that St. Paul tells us about the church, which we're not even aware of. Verse 7 of the gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So he's speaking about the mystery of Christ. The whole letter is about the mystery of Christ. That which Christ was about to reveal. The revelation of Christ. And now he's about to tell them what that mystery is. Mystery was hidden throughout all ages. And now it's being revealed. And here's the mystery. This is the revelation that St. Paul brings to us. Verse 10, that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to, might now be made known to men? No, that's not what he says. Might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. What are principalities and powers? Two of the choirs of angels. Why does he mention those in particular? Because those choirs are believed to be most connected with the well-being of the universe. Taking care of it. So what does he say? Through the church... The wisdom of God will be made known to whom? Angels. Okay, practically speaking, how does that happen? How, practically speaking, how does the manifold wisdom of God be made known to the angels? Practically. Mass, yeah, but what else? We're talking about wisdom, right? Therefore, we're talking about what? Teaching. The teaching. The teaching of the church. It is through the teaching of the church that the wisdom of God is being made known 
to angels. You know those documents that probably are collecting dust in your library, if you have them? I'm talking about the encyclicals of the popes. I'm talking about the canons of the church. I'm talking about the catechism of the Catholic Church. Through these documents, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to angels. And then we wonder, why is God not listening to my prayer? We fall so short of who we are. So short. All of us. Me first. We fall so short of being Catholic. If we had a list of priorities or a list of things that would define who we are, I bet that for most of us, being a Catholic is like maybe number six, maybe number ten. Very few of us would state that number one, I'm a Catholic, and live by it. That's why St. John wept. We have a treasure that we have to rediscover. Not going to happen without prayers. Not going to happen without falling on our knees and imploring God to show us. Not going to happen. We have a treasure in the liturgy awaiting us to discover it. Practically speaking, what does that mean for you and me? If you've been going to the liturgy sort of every Sunday, on autopilot mode. You know, if you're one of those car wash Catholics, you know, you, you wash your car on Saturday, you go to Mass on Sunday, type thing, and then the rest of the week you forget about it. Just as you forget about the car wash for the rest of the week. I don't know, a lot of people are obsessed about car wash throughout the week. If you're that kind, I would recommend that you start by allocating some time to pray every day where you have one or two things that you know you can offer during Mass on Sunday. You can bring with you and say, my guardian angel, now that this incense is going to go up to heaven to bring our prayers and our offering, I have those couple of things I can offer God. Please take them to the altar. If you've already been doing, and then be attentive. You go there not to get something, but to give God the glory. That means strain yourself intellectually. Strain. Put an effort to focus, to read, to listen, to pay attention to, the, to, to Scripture. Make an effort. It's not going to be easy because somebody's fighting you. So don't expect it to be easy. It won't be. You're doing battle. But make an effort. Make an effort to offer the best possible Mass you can. And don't just offer it for you. Offer it for the church. It's just about you. It's about everybody. And then, if you've been doing those things, I'd recommend you try going to Mass once a week. You notice, I'm not the kind of guy who recommends people go to Mass every day that easily. I don't. Because I value it so much that I don't want to recommend for someone to go there not knowing what they're doing. Just adding to a car wash. I did it on Sunday, I'm going to do it again another day. 
It's far more important, I believe, for us to know what we're doing and to do it well, even if it's once a week, than to go 365 times. Clueless. That's it. If you could do that, you rule. If you could do that, you further the works of the church across the entire world. You defeat nations. You defeat the greatest powers. You defeat them just by doing you, just by doing these little things I just mentioned to you. That's it. He does the rest. He takes care of the rest. I think I'm going to stop here. I will continue next time by starting to Going back in chapter 4 and 5 and now looking at the details, looking at all the images and symbolism a little bit closer and seeing where they come from. In the meantime, again, I do recommend to stay focused on the liturgy. The more you do that, the more you get closer to Christ. And God bless you. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, we do have time for questions. So, I keep on forgetting this. This is new to me. Um, we're gonna, now we're going to take questions regarding the lecture itself, and after that we'll take a break and move on to the general questions. Yes. The question is, angels have what we call intuitive knowledge. So if you were to give the angels the principles of mathematics, and as, in, as soon as they see those principles, they know every single truth you can derive from those principles. They're not like us. They don't have to go through the painstaking effort of trial and error and all that good stuff. And furthermore... The angels made the choice. They were also tested, just as we are tested, to choose for or against God. And once that decision is made, it can never be revoked because they had all knowledge required to make that decision. All the knowledge they needed to make a decision for or against God was given them. They still had to do it in faith, though. It wasn't sort of a mathematical equation that just they derived in QED. Yeah, I'm going to go with God. Doesn't work this way. They had knowledge that prompted them to make an act of faith. They had to make it too, just like us. All right? Having said that, and even though now they're in heaven, it doesn't mean that they know everything. They were given knowledge to know, to choose for God. It doesn't mean they know everything. For instance, they did not know how salvation would come about. They, they were not, it was not necessarily revealed to them the two natures of Christ. How is Christ God and man at the same time? How does that work? That came through the church. All the truth as we progress in a deeper understanding of God through the church is shared with them as well. And down the ages, there will, be never, there will never be an end to wisdom. Because wisdom isn't just knowledge. Because God is infinite, therefore there is no boundary to how much we can learn, other than ourselves, basically. All right? That's why. Yes? The question is, the church has the power to curse. Actually, each and every one of us has that power. Cursing, not in terms of swearing, but a covenantal curse. Um, when would the ch church, do, you know, when would she do that? When it is expedient. For instance, St. Paul himself says, in one of his letters, that he gave one of men to Satan for the uh, edification of the body. Uh, it is known of St. Francis that he cursed one man, and he actually, this man committed suicide. Uh, there are cases where it is the judgment of God that this person be given out to, um, to a curse because it's medicinal, or it is final. 
And I don't know why, I don't understand why we're so, uh, you know, we freeze. We have like a, you know, a short, as soon as we speak of those things. But the reality of the matter, you know it with your own children, you know it with the life in general, you know it with the penal system, you know it with everything. This is how we function because it's, it comes to us from God. Civic society is mirrored, is structured, good civic society is structured on the church. So somebody commits a murder, there is punishment. And to, his, to him it's a curse. And we accept that. But yet when it comes to God and the church, no we don't. We don't. Why? Think about that. Yes. So your question is, do you think that uh, reigning means that you have to go tell every, you know, you have to proclaim things? No. Not at all. Reigning is not about using my mouth. Uh, actually, I, I, I keep reminding you of what St. Francis said to his monks. Preach all the time. And when necessary, use words. Right? So you reign by holiness. You're not there because your reigning doesn't involve converting everybody around you. It's not going to happen. Your reigning is not about showing that you're right and they're wrong. Or even showing that the church is right and they're wrong. It's not going to happen either. Right? But the reigning is to see clearly in your mind the battle that is going on and see that none of us is worthy to open that scroll and to weep with them, to weep for them, and to pray God for them. Then you reign. You understand? Yes. The question is, the importance of staying to the end of the Mass and then joining in the final, ble- I mean, receiving the final blessing and then joining in the final hymn. Yes, we will be elaborating as we move th- through. I'll just say this to you. You go to Mass, you receive communion, you leave, you're like somebody who went to the wedding, stay to the main course, and then stay for the cake. Rude. And it's noticed. Somebody is keeping tap. So change your habit if you're doing it. But we will be covering it in, in a lot more detail. Any other? Yes. Yes. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the same thing. And the church. All three are synonymous. So, again, I remind you, just so that you can understand this, there are many folks on earth who, many, there are folks on earth who are not officially inscribed in the Catholic Church who will make it to heaven. That is a teaching of the Church. But anyone who's in heaven is fully Catholic. Nothing else. But anyone in heaven is fully Catholic. Nothing else. You don't have like a compartment for the Protestant and one for the Catholics and here the Buddhist and here... No. You're Catholic or you're not. There. I don't know. It's their problem. (laughs) The church is here. That's the point. That's how we further the kingdom. You understand? It's not my job to figure out how they're going to make it. My job is to do what he told me to do. That's what I focus on. Yes. Um, anyone, that's the teaching of the the Second Vatican Council, anyone who follows the dictate of his heart, which is the natural law, the Ten Commandments inscribed in everybody's heart, and who, through invincible ignorance, was never, knew nothing about Christ, right? 
will make it to heaven. Again, I'll say that to you. You don't, the church is not necessary for salvation. In the absolute term, only baptism is. You only need to be baptized. And there's three baptisms. Baptism by water, and then baptism by blood, and baptism by desire. Those are the three ways you can get to heaven. That's in the absolute sense. But even if you did it this way, when you get up there, you become Catholic. There's no choice. It's one kingdom, one truth, one king. You understand? Yes. Well, there's, that's how they live being part of the church, right? So they're giving witness to the church. They, of course, they're not, they're not supposed to put their lives in danger. Of course not. No, 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 no. Remember this. We are not to uh, try to kind of promote ourselves as martyrs. It's actually a sin. We have to do everything we can to preserve our lives. And a very good reference for this, if you ever have this kind of conversation, is St. Thomas More. Right? St. Thomas More did everything he could to avoid being killed. Everything. But when it came finally to that either you re- renounce the, the Roman church or you die, when, when finally it was put on those terms, he had to make a choice. And then when, when he was about to be beheaded, he told the, the guy bearing the axe, uh, <laughs> uh, steady your hand, my, my, my friend. I want to show up before God with a, with a, with a clean cut. <laughs> no fear. He's a great saint, St. Thomas More. Great saint. God bless you. Let's finish with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.